The Story of Glam and Grettir The short winter day was coming to an end in the settlement at Shady Valley when there was a loud knock at the farmhouse door. Yes, Thorhall opened the door warily. The night had been disturbed by thumps and bangs and noises on the roof yet again, and another sheep had gone missing. He did not feel any better when he pulled the door open to find one of the biggest men he had ever seen standing on the other side of it. The man was so tall he seemed almost a giant, and heavy-set and muscular with it. His bright blue eyes stared at Thorhall, unnaturally wide open, and his hair was wolf-grey. "'Scapti sent me,' the stranger said gruffly, "'to look after the sheep.' "'Oh, yes, right. Glam, isn't it?' "'Thank you,' said Thorhall awkwardly. "'I can only work for you if I can make my own decisions,' said Glam. "'I become difficult when things do not go my way.' "'Oh, um, okay,' said Thorhall. "'I have no problem with that as long as you can look after my sheep.' Gunnar here, and he gestured to his long-serving cowherd who was warming himself by the fire. He looks after the cows, but I have not been able to keep a shepherd more than a few weeks. I can look after your sheep, said Glam. And Skapti told me you had trouble keeping shepherds. What is it that scares them off? Thorhall nervously gestured for the big man to come inside out of the cold, and Glam stooped down to enter the house. Thorhall's wife Gudrun stood up to greet the visitor, but Glam ignored her entirely and turned to Thorhall, waiting for the answer to his question. "'This farm is haunted,' Thorhall said reluctantly. "'We hear thumps and bangs and crashes on the roof every night, and I cannot keep a shepherd. Some have been injured, others have left before their contracts expired. And now no one who knows this farm will take on the job. I am just lucky that Gunnar is willing to stay, but he cannot look after all the sheep and the cows by himself, and I have other work to do as chieftain of this settlement. I am not afraid of ghosts, said Glam. I find they break the boredom. Oh, well, that's good then, said Thorhall. And so Glam came to work for Thorhall, but it quickly became clear that the farmer was the only person in the settlement of Thorhallstead who was pleased to have him. Even Gudrun, despite knowing how desperate they were for a shepherd, could not stand the man. He will not come to church, she complained to Thorhall, nor will he sing prayers. He does not follow the old religion either. I do not think he believes in anything. Does it matter, said Thorhall? doesn't need to believe in anything to watch the sheep. If he doesn't believe in ghosts, he will be caught unawares and injured like the others, Gudrun pointed out. Anyway, that is not the biggest problem. I have never heard a kind word come out of his mouth, only cruel jokes and insults. He is vulgar and foul, and everything he has to say is mean-spirited or unpleasant. Then ignore him and let him say it to the sheep, said Thorhall. They won't mind. Gudrun muttered to herself that she lived there too, and she minded, but she knew there was nothing to be done about it, so she kept going as best she could until the day before the festival of Yule. That morning, Glam, who was always an early riser, which Gudrun was not, got up even earlier than usual and demanded his breakfast. It is the day before Christmas, she told him. It is the custom of Christians to fast on this day, to prepare for the festival which begins tomorrow. And this is a Christian household. You have many superstitions for which I see no use, complained Glam. I liked the customs better when men were called heathen, and I want my food. You will pay for that, and for this behaviour if you keep it up, Gudrun warned him. "'Bring me my food now, or it will be the worse for you,' demanded Glam, rising up so that his whole huge body loomed over Gudrun, 
his fierce wide eyes staring at her and his wolf hair standing up on end. Trembling, she fetched him the food, praying to God for understanding as she did so. To her immense relief, he went outside as soon as he had finished eating. It was snowing and the wind was howling. The noise built and built throughout the day until finally a storm broke in the evening. By then, it had been hours since anyone had seen or heard Glam, but Gudrun could not bring herself to feel anything but relief at his disappearance. Gudrun and Thorhall fought their way through the storm to the church for the mass of Christmas Eve, and still there was no sign of Glam, who had not even returned to ask for his dinner. No one they asked had seen him either. Thorhall wanted to go out and look for him, and for his sheep as well, but his friends and neighbours pointed to the drifting snow and the pitch darkness outside and told him to wait until daylight, or he would risk getting lost himself. As soon as the winter sun peeped over the horizon on Christmas morning, Thorhall gathered his most trusted friends and neighbours, and took Gunnar temporarily away from the cows as well, and begged them all to help him search. They set out from the valley towards the mountains where the sheep were taken to graze. As they fought their way through the masses of drifted snow, Thorhall thought he heard a plaintive sound coming from just up ahead. Looking up, he saw what looked at first like a simple snowdrift starting to move and rustle, and realised he could hear the sound of an animal in distress coming from that direction. He rushed over and dug with his hands in the snow until he uncovered one of his own sheep, alive but cold, exhausted and trembling. Thorhall embraced the animal and sent it back down to the sheepfold with a neighbour. Over the next hour or so, most of the rest of his flock were found in the same condition, tired and cold and alone. Thorhall was starting to worry that they would lose the light and still have no answers, but as they came to the head of the valley, they found a place where the snow had been trodden down across a wide area. Stones were scattered all around the packed snow, and the ground was so disturbed that soil and grass were poking through. There has been a struggle here, said one of Thorhall's neighbours. Look, over here, cried Gunnar. Lying a short distance away was the body of Glam. He was clearly dead. He was blue-black as hell and swollen as fat as an ox. The men gagged and turned away from the sight. Thorhall focused on the trampled snow around the body and saw what looked like gigantic footprints in the snow, from feet so big it looked almost as if barrel bottoms had been thrown down at regular intervals. He followed the tracks for some way up the mountain, and soon saw a thick trail of blood staining the white snow all alongside them. But eventually the tracks petered out, covered over by snowdrifts, and he could not go any further. "'What do you think happened?' asked Gunnar. "'He must have been attacked by the monster that has been haunting the farm,' said Thorhall. "'But look at all this blood!' I think he injured the monster so badly in turn that it has died as well. My farm will be free. Perhaps, said Gunnar, not wanting to squash his optimism. We should bury Glam decently, said Thorhall, as they made their way back towards the body. He may not have been a Christian man, but he has done me a good turn if he has killed the monster. So the men tried to drag Glam's body back to the church, but he was so big and heavy and the snow so thick that it could not be done. They tried again the next day, the second day of Christmas, and brought oxen to pull him, but even the animals could not shift the huge man. On the third day of Christmas, they brought along a priest, and at first it seemed like the body had disappeared, as it was not where they left it. The priest, cold and tired, went home, and immediately they spotted Glam's body, lying in just the spot they were sure they had been looking only minutes before. 
He will not come to the church, said Thorhall. Bury him here. And so they piled a mound of stones on top of Glam where he lay and hoped that would be the end of it. But it wasn't. The trouble began almost immediately. No sooner had the twelfth day of Christmas passed than Gudrun, fetching breakfast before the sun was up, saw Glam standing in a dark corner of the farmhouse, staring at her with his unnatural wide eyes. She screamed and dropped her bread, and when she turned around, he was gone. But she had lamps and candles burning almost constantly after that, and Thorhall found his biggest worry was how he could keep providing her with oil and animal fat for the wax and logs for the fire. And that was not all, for no matter how much light they brought into the house, they could not light the winter night outside. If Thorhall thought the disturbances on the roof were bad before, they were nothing to Glam, who rode the roof every night until it was nearly broken, thumping and crashing and banging and stomping. Soon everyone in the settlement had seen him wandering about at least once, in the day as well as at night, and Thorhall was starting to think that he had swapped an annoying monster for a much worse and more frightening one, for several of his neighbours never recovered from their terror at the sight, and more and more people moved away and left Shady Valley altogether. As the days finally started to lengthen into spring, Thorhall and Gudrun got some blessed relief, and even Glam's nighttime appearances lessened. In the endless days of midsummer, they did not see him at all. Thorhall began to hope again, and when he heard that a foreigner had arrived at Hunavarten by ship and was looking for work, he hurried out to meet the man. Thorgat was almost as big as Glam, but, Thorhall was very happy to realise, much less belligerent. He was a friendly, smiling, easygoing man who, when Thorhall asked him if he could look after his sheep over the winter, replied, Sure, if there's work for me, I'm happy to do it. I am not particular. Thorhall almost didn't tell him about the hauntings, he was so anxious for the man to come and work for him, but he decided Thorgout was bound to find out about it before winter, since everyone for miles around had heard the story by now. Better he hear it straight away, and if he was going to be put off, Thorhall would still have time to find someone else. He was both surprised and delighted when Thorgout didn't seem put off at all. "'I'm not the kind of man to give up, even if I see a ghost or two, Thorgout reassured him. Few others will stay calm in any situation that frightens me, for those are few and far between. And I won't break a bargain because of a ghost, either. Thorgat was as good as his word, and when he arrived at the settlement, everyone liked him, especially Gudrun, who even agreed to reduce the number of lamps and candles she was burning while Thorgat was at the house. A warm personality alone was not enough to get rid of Glam, though, and as the nights got longer and darker, he could be heard on the roof again, night after night, until Thorhall thought he would break right through the earth and get into the farmhouse that way. Thorgout did not seem bothered at all. He will have to come closer than that to scare me, he said cheerfully, as the knocking on the roof moved over towards the place where all three sat by the fire. I would not defy him or dismiss him, said Thorhall carefully. He has driven so many of our people away already. You seem to have had your courage knocked out of you, said Thorgout but I can assure you I am not going to die overnight because of this kind of talk. Christmas was coming, and with it the first anniversary of Glam's death. As Gudrun sent Gunnar to check on the cows and Thorgout out to check on the sheep, she spontaneously grabbed the big man and hugged him hard, holding on tight as if she would never let go. 
I need to know we are not going to get a repeat of last year, she said into his shoulder. Don't be afraid, ma'am, said Thorgout. There will at least be something worth telling if I do not return. This Gudrun did not find comforting. It was snowing once again, another white-out Christmas. As the sun dropped below the hills, Thorgout did not come home at his usual time. Gudrun and Thorhall went to Mass with their hearts sinking, praying for a miracle, but they came home again to an empty house and the muttering of their neighbours who steered clear and would not come near them. We must go and look for him, Thorhall told his neighbours desperately. He may have got lost in the snow. Are you kidding? exclaimed his nearest neighbour. You think we're going to put ourselves in the hands of trolls in the middle of the night in the snow? Go home, Thorhall. We will all meet you after our Christmas meal tomorrow and begin a search. I think we all know what we will find. His neighbour was right. When the sun had risen as high as it was going to on Christmas Day, and everyone had eaten their Christmas meal, all the men in the settlement went straight to Glam's rocky grave on the hillside. There they found Thorgout's body, shattered and broken. Not just his neck, but every single bone in his body had been broken down to the smallest toe bone. A solemn procession carried his body on a bier down to the church for Christian burial. He was a good man, said Gudrun through her tears. He will cause no trouble. No, but Glam is still out there, replied their neighbour darkly. When the morning of the second day of Christmas dawned, Thorhall and Gudrun woke to find everyone else in the settlement packing their things and closing up their homesteads. Thorhall went round each family in turn, begging them to stay, but none of them would. Are you leaving too? he asked Gunnar glumly. You will be ruined if I leave you to look after this whole farm by yourself, said Gunnar kindly. I have been with you since your father was alive. Where you go, I go. Thorhall and Gudrun threw their arms about him from either side and wrapped him in a warm hug. But their hugs and their prayers were not enough to keep Glam at bay. As the cold deepened and the long nights dragged on, a morning came when Gudrun stopped on her way to the cowshed to do the milking. Gunnar had gone out there at first light and she was not expecting any trouble. But as she approached the cowshed, she heard a great cacophony of crashing, banging noises and a dreadful, inhuman bellowing. Her nerves on a knife's edge, she screamed and fled back to the house to tell Thorhall that something horrible was happening in the cowshed. Thorhall ran out there as quick as he could, but he could barely get in the door, for he found the cattle fighting and wrestling and goring each other, blood and dirt and sweat everywhere. He backed out of the cowshed towards the hay barn when a shadow on the ground caught his eye. Gunnar's body lay across the floor of the barn, his head in a stall on one side and his body stretched between with his feet in another. He lay on his back, and Thorhall saw straight away that he was dead, his back broken across the stone slab separating the two stalls. Thorhall returned to find Gudrun packing up all their most precious things, preparing to leave the settlement. He said nothing, but helped her to pack. Welcome, nephew. Come in and eat. Grete was relieved to get such a warm welcome from his uncle Jokul, whom he barely knew. After years of living as an outlaw, any day he got a warm welcome was a good day. My house is becoming a shelter for lost souls and wandering men, exclaimed Uncle Jokul with a laugh, gesturing towards a miserable-looking man sitting close to the fire and warming his hands, 
with a woman who was presumably his wife leaning in close, her head on his shoulder and her eyes closed. The man looked up at Grettir and gave him a small nod in acknowledgement and greeting. "'Hello,' said Grettir, settling himself down next to the glum-looking man. "'Have you also taken shelter with my uncle?' "'We had no choice,' said the man. "'We used to live nearby, but our whole settlement has been abandoned. "'Your uncle has always been a good friend to us and has taken us in, "'but we cannot stay long. "'The threat that drove us away is making its way here too, "'and anyway, we have nowhere else to go.' "'The threat?' Grettir asked, filling horns for both of them with ale. "'A ghost,' Thorhall replied, for of course it was him. "'We hired him to deal with a monster, but he himself has become a much worse one. "'He killed our friend and our long-serving family farmhand. "'He drove away all the villagers in the settlement where I was once a chieftain. "'After we left, he killed all our livestock as well, "'and he has been killing all the livestock in all the farms in Tunga, "'going further and further abroad the closer we get to the depths of winter.' Soon, even this place will be at risk. Grettir watched the woman wipe a tear from her eye, though he had thought she was asleep. This ghost or troll or whatever he is needs to be dealt with, said Grettir. I have fought and defeated a Draugr before. I can do it again. I will go to your farm and take care of this evil spirit for you. If you're willing, I will reward you as best I can, Thorhall said. But do not stay long. Even if you escape unharmed yourself, I can tell you for a fact that you will lose that fine horse I saw being led away when you came in. No one who has gone to the farm has managed to hold on to their horse unscathed. I have enough horses, whatever might happen to this one, said Grettir. Yokel had been listening and laid a hand on his nephew's shoulder. Evil will only beget evil where glam is concerned, he said. Do not go near that place. It is far better to grapple with humans than with monsters. "'Danger is at your own door when it has entered your neighbours, uncle,' Grettir replied. "'You might want to think about how things might turn out for you if I do not go.' "'Well, I can see you are determined,' said Yokel with a sigh. "'Just remember, nephew, that luck and ability are not the same, "'and that we might both be seeing the future here.' Thorhall would not leave Grettir to face the monster alone, "'and the next day they rode together to Thorhallstead. Grettir could see the damage Glam had wrought as soon as they reached the farm. The earth roof was lumpy and patchy where Glam had been riding the house all night long, and the door was hanging off its hinges. That first night things seemed quiet, but when they got up the next morning, the stable door had been smashed in and Grettir's horse had been dragged out and every bone in its body broken. "'You should go,' Thorhall told Grettir hoarsely as they dug a grave. "'There is nothing to be done here. Go and save yourself.' You will certainly die if you face Glam, like Thorgout and Gunnar did before you. But Grettir was not moved. For my horse, I will take no less a price than seeing this creature, he said. That night, while Thorhall locked himself firmly in his bed closet, Grettir stayed out in the turf house. He kept all his clothes on and lay down on a bench across the front of Thorhall's bed closet and pulled a rough sheepskin cloak over himself to keep warm, for it was snowing and a bitter wind was blowing again. He pulled it right up over his head to hide as much of himself as possible underneath it. He and Thorhall had put a makeshift door of wooden planks across the gaping hole left where the door had been pulled away, and the wooden wall separating the entrance hall from the main hall had been broken through as well, so he could see the whirling snow against the moon from where he lay, until the clouds came over and the moonlight disappeared. 
He kept a lamp burning nearby in the hall all night long. About a third of the night had passed when Gretir heard the thumping sound of something climbing up the walls onto the roof of the house. Over his head, he heard the unseen creature beating down on the roof with its heels, every timber in the building creaking with each impact. After what felt like hours, but can only have been minutes, he heard shuffling and movement coming back down the walls of the house, and the makeshift door was pushed open from the outside. A strange and horribly deformed head with greatly oversized features poked itself through the flimsy door and stared straight at Gretir. He turned his head away from the glare of its piercing blue eyes in the light of his lamp, but he lay still as the huge thing pulled itself into the farmhouse and stood tall, so tall its head reached the rafters and it braced its arms on the crossbeam to peer all around the room. The thing came slowly across the room to the bench where Gretir lay. It tugged at the sheepskin cloak, but Gretir braced his feet against the raised board at the end of the bench and did not move. Glam pulled at the cloak again, much harder, but still Gretir braced himself and stayed put. But then Glam pulled a third time with both hands, and Gretir was pulled from the bench and the cloak was ripped in two. Gretir did not waste time, but darted under the creature's huge arms and tackled it, grabbing it around the middle and trying to throw it over. But Glam simply grabbed Gretir's arms with a grip so strong he was barely able to push and wriggle his way to freedom. Gretir fell back against the bench and the two wrestled. Locked safely in his bed closet, Thorhall heard everything but was far too terrified to move, and he lay frozen in place, feeling the thumps and crashes against his thin wooden bed walls as the two fought right next to him. He could hear smashing and the sound of wood breaking, for Glam and Gretir were destroying almost everything in the house in their desperate struggle. Gretir realised that Glam was determined to pull him out of the house and get him outside into the snow and the darkness. He held out for as long as he could, grabbing everything he could lay his hands on, bracing his feet against every bit of furniture they touched. But it was no good. Glam's strength was just too much for him. As they reached the empty doorway, Gretir changed his tactics. When Glam pulled him right up against his monstrous body, Gretir suddenly switched gears and pushed at him as hard as he could so that Glam fell backwards through the doorway, his shoulders ripping off the doorframe and breaking apart the roof rafters as he fell, so that clods of frozen turf fell around them. Pulled by the same momentum, Gretir fell on top of Glam as they both tumbled into the snow. Just as they fell, the clouds parted and the moonlight shone down on them. Glam stared up at the light and Gretir found himself nose to nose with the creature's strange, distorted face, those piercing bright blue eyes staring upwards out of its twisted, protruding features. Ever afterwards, Gretir always said it was the only sight that had ever truly terrified him. He froze, motionless, pinning the creature down but unable to finish it off. Glam turned to look Gretir straight in the face. I have more evil power in me than your average white outlaw, he said. You have shown great determination in finding me, but you will get no good of it. Whatever strength and stature you would have reached if you had never come here, you will now be only half of what you could have become. I will not take from you the strength you already have, but I have the power to prevent you from ever becoming stronger. You have become famous because of your great deeds, even though you are a killer and an outlaw. But from now on, you will fall ever deeper into outlawry and murder. Everything you do will turn against you, bringing bad luck and no joy. You will be forced always to live in the wilds alone. And I lay this curse against you as well, 
These eyes of mine will always be in your sight, and you will find the solitude unbearable until it drags you to your death. And his horrible eyes with their weird blue light stared straight into Grete's face. Shaking himself off, Grete drew his short sword and cut off Glam's head before the wretched monster could utter any more curses. He placed the head against the monster's buttocks and called to Thorhall that it was safe to come out. Together they burned Glam's body all night and all the next day until only cold ashes remained. These they buried as far away as possible from anywhere either people or livestock were likely to go. When they returned to the farmhouse, despite the broken doorway and the cold wind, Grettir simply sank into Thorhall's box bed, the only item of furniture undisturbed, and lay still, easing his stiff muscles and joints. I promise I will reward you handsomely, Thorhall was saying excitedly. You have saved my farm and my settlement. You will have a new horse, of course, a fine horse, and fine clothes, for I see yours have been ripped to pieces. And gold! I can give you gold, too! I, I don't have much, but what I have is yours. Grettir listened and nodded his thanks, but with little enthusiasm. He would not close the door on the box bed, and he insisted on keeping a light on all night long once more, even though the threat had gone. When he tried to rest, he could still see Glam's terrible bright eyes boring into his skull. And from that day he could never travel alone at night, and was as frightened of the dark as the smallest child. The End Hi, I'm Juliet Harrison, and welcome back to Creepy Classics, the podcast retelling and discussing ancient medieval and early modern ghost stories, with new episodes every two months. So this comes from Grettir's Saga, which is an orally derived poem, uh, an epic poem. It's an outlaw saga, so it follows a character, Grettir, uh, who has been outlawed. He's done a whole lot of murder earlier in the story uh, by an anonymous author, it was written around the beginning of the 14th century CE, and it is set quite a bit earlier than that, uh, not long after about 1000 CE. So it is a piece of historical fiction. And one thing that I noticed as I was writing this out is that the original author had put in loads of details for me about the setting. So normally when I write these stories, I have to spend ages looking up stuff like what kind of lamp did Romans use and what did the streets look like? All these things that when I'm studying religion, I don't necessarily know exactly how the kitchens worked or something, whatever I need for the story. In this case, the later medieval author has put in tons of detail. This particular author has been really interested in giving you the exact details of exactly how Grettir has braced his feet against a plank at the end of a bench. And there's loads of descriptions of the house, description of the wooden wall separating the entrance from the main area of the turf house, all that kind of thing. The setting here is an Icelandic turf house. So it's a house with a wooden structure, but then there's turf all over the walls and the roof in order to keep the heat in during the cold winters. So that has been beautifully described by the later author, which is brilliant. Uh, also, the author is Christian, but the story is set not long after Christianity became the religion in Iceland. So 
there's an awareness of the older religion as well. It's interesting that the character of Glam uh, specifically doesn't have any belief in anything. He does say he prefers the old religion. He says he liked it when men were called heathen, but he doesn't seem to be particularly attached to old Norse religion. He has no beliefs. He's just kind of not interested in anything. And one of the things about Glam that's um, quite characteristic of uh, ghosts, draugas, whites and so on in Scandinavian sagas is that he is an unpleasant person in life. Um, and we saw that uh, a couple episodes ago with the ghost of Kilachrap as well, that he was a horrible person in life and then he becomes an even worse drauga or white or ghost or revenant or whichever word we want to use uh, in death. And I talked about this quite a bit in that episode on Olaf and Kilachrap, so I'm not talking about it too much today. Um, but the the drauger or troll or white or revenant that is often translated as ghost in modern translations of Scandinavian sagas is, as you can tell from this story, quite a lot more physical. Uh, you can physically fight them. This is not the kind of um, insubstantial ghost that we see either in Greek sources, um, where ghosts are more often insubstantial, or in more recent sources like Victorian ghost stories or something. Scandinavian sagas are really, their monsters are better described as revenants than ghosts. Um, I guess we use ghost partly because it feels more natural, it's more common usage in English. We don't talk about revenants very much outside of something very archaic and Victorian sounding or something very formal. So I guess people prefer ghost because it's just a more commonly used word, but it doesn't really describe what they are terribly accurately. And the word troll, which more often in a modern context implies like a big stone creature, like something out of Tolkien or the Discworld or something, um, that word is used for various types of monster, including the, the drauga, the revenant. There's at least one funny line in there that I can't take credit for because it's in the original. Some of the characterization is really lovely in this story, although because it covers quite a lot of time, there is a heck of a lot of telling not showing and trying to get it into an appropriate length story for the podcast while also trying to get a bit more depth to some of these characters without just saying Thorgout was really nice um, was quite a challenge. I do apologise for my pronunciation. I am anglicising all the pronunciations um, because I, I don't speak Icelandic. Um, Thorgout Thorgaut? Thorgaut did give me particular trouble. I did try and look it up, but I couldn't find anything that would tell me how to pronounce it. So uh, apologies to anybody Icelandic. Um, I am aware that I am probably not pronouncing that correctly. I do try when I can to find the correct pronunciation for things. I did cut down some sections of the story as well. So it's quite long and complicated. I think you could probably write a novel based on this story by expanding it rather than contracting it. Um, but I'm not going to read an entire novel for a podcast episode. So I have cut it in places. I've cut down the beginning where Thorhall goes to the booth of a lawman called Skapti at a summer all thing, which is a big meeting. This is one of my recent discoveries. A thing is an Old Norse word for a meeting, an assembly, and it's literally thing with a capital T. I love it. Uh, so he talks to this lawman called Skapti and explains the problem and Skapti says it will send him glam and then he meets glam in the woods on the way home and I cut all that down. Uh, there are no woods in Iceland now, but there were back then. They were all chopped down for the <laughs> turf houses and bed closets and things. 
Glam seems to be a slave of some kind. Um, he is given some choice in whether he works for Thorhall or not. So it's a little bit unclear exactly what his status is. It is safe to say he is low status, uh, which is also interesting. There are frequent references to him that have been translated in the English translation I was using as slave. I don't know enough Icelandic to know the exact original word or its connotations. Um, he definitely seems to be some kind of slave or serf or somebody who is not his own person, while at the same time having a bit more choice in what he does than, for example, a Greek or Roman chattel slave who would literally just be bought and sold and told what to do. A bed closet, by the way, is um, an enclosed box bed bed closet uh, that was used throughout the medieval and into the early modern period to stay warm. Um, so it is uh, literally like a, a box. <laughs> you can lock yourself into it, as Thorhall does toward the end of the story. I also cut out one of the victims uh, in the saga. Thorhall's daughter also dies. But it says that there's a bunch of attacks on her and then she dies. But it says it really quickly. It's barely described. And also, not only would that make the story even longer, but it would change the tone. If you know, It's bad enough that poor old uh, Gunnar the cowherd, who I had to name, by the way. Uh, Gunnar means bold warrior. Uh, he's not named. Again, low status doesn't get a name in the story. Um, but I, I wanted to give him one. So it's bad enough that poor old Gunnar the family cowherd dies. If I killed off Thorhall's daughter, then that would be so tragic that it would need to take up time and space and it would alter the, the tone. Um, so I, I just cut the daughter altogether. I decided there were enough victims without her. And I also tweaked how often Thorhall keeps going back to the farm after they've left it, keeps trying again and again and again. I placed him at Yokel's place, um, where in the saga, Grettir just kind of hears about it from the people there. And I reduced three nights to two at the end to speed up the conclusion a bit. Most of this story, of course, takes place in winter. Medieval Iceland had basically two seasons, summer and winter. Most of Iceland is not actually in the Arctic Circle, but it's not far south of it. So I made a reference to endless summer days at one point. Technically, Iceland or most of Iceland is not in the land of the midnight sun, but it is so close to it um, that the days in the summer would feel nearly endless and certainly compared to the extremely short days in the winter. And so many Icelandic ghost or draugr stories take place in the winter and especially around Christmas or Yule, that darkest time of year. And they are very closely associated with the danger of darkness, which is, of course, extremely important to this story, where Grettir is not only cursed by Glam and that curse plays out over the rest of the saga, but he also ends up with a lifelong fear of the dark as a result of this experience. It's not clear what the original monster is that Glam fights. Um, presumably another revenant or troll or um, a monster. It's just a, a vaguely described uh, monster. David Zori and Jesse Bayok in their introduction to their translation of the saga have noted that Christian teachings teach that soulless bodies are animated by the devil or demons, whereas Icelandic draugr come back to life by their own volition and not by external possession. And that also ties into that idea that they are often people who were unpleasant in life. So in medieval Christian ghost stories, 
often, not always, um, it might actually be a devil or a demon um, who is creating the haunting activity. Not always, but that, that is a theme that comes up sometimes. Um, but these definitely are, are coming back to life by their own volition. It's it's them, it's the, the person, but particularly evil. Glam never explains why he has more power than other evil spirits. Um, that just seems to be something that he has. Possibly a combination of his physical strength in life and his unpleasantness. Icelandic revenants also have an interesting habit of riding the roof, which comes up many times in this story and elsewhere. So the roof is, of course, turf. It's frozen sod turf. Paul Barber has wondered if there is some kind of natural phenomenon causing noises and even shifting in the turf roof in the winter when it freezes that might lead to these stories so people hear sounds in the roof and then maybe even see some disturbance and assume that something must be on the roof. All this reminded me of, to be honest, was Santa Claus because I watched the movie The Santa Claus again at the weekend and all I can think about is Santa stomping about on the roof and I'm suddenly wondering if this is why Santa comes down the chimney, although of course the Santa mythos doesn't come from places with turf roofs. Uh, so that probably has more to do with just kind of birds or something landing on the roofs. Um, but this is very distinct about uh, Scandinavian revenant stories. Um, so that would make sense if there's something about a turf roof in freezing conditions that causes it to make weird noises that would explain this otherwise quite strange um, trope where these ghosts or revenants ride the roof. So as I mentioned, this story is set just shortly after Iceland converted to Christianity in 1000 CE. In Norway, obviously the story is set in Iceland, um, in Norway, Snorri Sturluson's Heimskringla saga credits Harkon the Good with shifting the date of the Norse pagan festival of Yule from the 14th of December to the 25th of December to match Christmas. So presumably something similar happened in Iceland. Yule was shifted to the slightly later date and the word Yule carries on being used more or less interchangeably with Christmas and that continues. Uh, the Victorians use the word Yule for Christmas. Um, so they just kind of keep calling the festival Yule, but they shift it by a little over a week and it becomes the Christian festival of Christmas. And they use the word Christmas as well. We don't know much detail about Norse Yule for certain, but the Heimskringler gives us an idea of what might have gone on, possibly involving throwing quite a lot of blood all over the place. So for more details on that, check out uh, my video on it on my YouTube channel, Classical JG, where I did a video on Norse pagan Yule. Modern Christian Catholic tradition has a mass at midnight on Christmas Eve, which is the first mass of Christmas. So this is the mass that everybody is going to on the night of Christmas Eve in the story, probably at midnight, but certainly on that, that night of Christmas Eve, you go to the mass. Um, and certainly when I was growing up, uh, we didn't always go to mass on Christmas Day. We went to midnight mass on Christmas Eve, which is, of course, Christmas Day, technically, at midnight. Um, and then sometimes we went to Mass on Christmas morning as well. But the, the obligation, the Roman Catholic obligation to go to Mass had been fulfilled by going to midnight Mass on Christmas Eve. The saga also mentions everybody eating before going out to search for Thorgout. So I've assumed that they are having a kind of midday Christmas dinner, which is what we do in the UK. So 
Here in the UK, the tradition is uh, you go to church. And obviously, many people don't go to church Christmas morning, and even we didn't. <laughs> but uh, back in the day, people would go to church in the morning. Uh, and then you come home and you have a Sunday roast dinner, regardless of what day of the week Christmas Day is. It's essentially a fancy Sunday roast, uh, which is a meal that you have at lunchtime. It's the midday meal. Uh, that was a difference I noticed when I went uh, to stay with my American relatives in the US. I hadn't realised that they tended to eat Christmas dinner a bit later in the day, more like 5pm. Um, and then suddenly all the movies where people turn up to Christmas dinner and it's dark outside made sense to me. So I've just assumed that medieval Icelanders are doing something similar to 20th and 21st century British people and having a Christmas meal in the middle of the day and then they're going out to search after that before the light goes. There's also this really interesting description of Glam's dead body as being blue or black as hell. That's hell with one L. H-E-L. The Icelandic saga database's modern Icelandic version of the saga gives this as Blarsem Hell, again, one L, uh, which Jesse Bayek translates as black as hell, and Paul Barber translates as dark blue in colour. So I wasn't happy with either of those. <laughs> I went with blue black as hell, uh, with my total um, lack of any knowledge of Icelandic whatsoever, but I do recognise the word hell. Paul Barber is interested primarily in the, the colour because he's talking about how it relates to the process of decomposition. Um, but I think that description of uh, black or blue as hell is really interesting. So ghosts or revenants being black is not unusual uh, across various different cultures. And this probably stems from either the appearance of burnt corpses or, as well, possibly, the stage of decomposition where the putrefying human body swells and turns dark and often completely black. So for more details on that, see chapter 11 of Richard Shepard's memoir, Unnatural Causes, where he describes the process of putrefaction and how it can be affected by temperature and uh, situation and cause of death and all sorts of things uh, in much more detail, which I will spare you here, uh, in case you don't want to know that much detail. Uh, but basically, it is a part of the, the kind of stages of decomposition. So that's the reason for the colour, and probably why so many ghosts and revenants in stories from different cultures have this black um, appearance, regardless of the kind of racial or ethnic origin of the person. This is something that happens um, potentially to all human bodies if they putrefy. Hell, with one L, is both the underworld, uh, the realm of the dead, and it's the name of a daughter of Loki and the giantess Angerbotha, uh, who was sent to the underworld to rule either all or some of it, depending on the story you're reading. The underworld had been called Niflheimer, the world of mist and shadows, and there is some debate over which came first, the goddess Hell or the realm Hell. The word might come from the Proto-Germanic Helan to cover or hide, so maybe Hell was a word for a grave, place where you cover something. It's found in poetry, so poems written by Christians, even if they are oral derived and set in an earlier time. So exactly what the Norse pagan concept was, if it was a common concept in the pagan period, um, is a bit hard to say because all of the evidence for this particular word, um, or a lot of the evidence for this particular word, is coming from Christian sources um, who are, first of all, not necessarily going to know, and second of all, 
are probably conflating it a little bit with the the Christian hell with two L's. Uh, Having said that, hell with one L is a lot more like the Greco-Roman Hades um, than the Christian hell with two L's because it's the realm of the dead. It's not the kingdom of the devil. So although it's dark and potentially unpleasant and associated with death and so on, it is not actively evil necessarily. Um, There might be evil in it or evil might come from it, but it's not ruled over by this great evil figure and it's not the place where bad people go. Again, there might be areas where bad people go in it, but the realm of the dead itself is a little bit more neutral than that. If you're interested in anything I have covered in this episode, um, I was using the translation of Greta's Saga by Jesse Bayok from Oxford World Classics 2009 with introduction and notes, which are invaluable. I was alerted to the existence of the story by a uh, blog post on the postgradchronicles.org on berserks, revenants and ghost seals surviving a saga Christmas, written by Matt Firth. I also had a look at Paul Barber's Vampires, Burial and Death, Folklore and Reality, where he talked briefly about glam and at Richard Shepard's Unnatural Causes, his memoir. And I uh, used an article, if you have access to JSTOR or academic journals, uh, from Christopher Abram, Hell in Early Norse Poetry in Viking and Medieval Scandinavia, Volume 2, pages 1 to 29. Thank you so much for listening. I will be back in February with a new episode. In the meantime, I have a new YouTube channel called Classical JG, and I have new videos going up weekly, although having said that, I will take a break over Christmas and New Year's. So that will start up again in January, um, because I will be on holiday um, for the rest of December, more or less. Uh, there's a few videos up there already, so do go check that out. You can also find me on TikTok under at Classical JG as well. And in the meantime, happy holidays, happy any festival you celebrate at this time of year, happy Christmas if you celebrate that, enjoy working if you don't celebrate a holiday this time of year, Um, and I will hopefully catch you all on YouTube or back on the podcast in a couple months. Creepy Classics was written and performed by Juliet Harrison, music composed and performed by Ed Harrison, it was produced by Juliet Harrison with assistance from Newman University. (laughs) 